It was a little bit of a jarring reality for me last week. Uh, some of Hawaii this past week. I appreciate your prayers for me, for my family, as we endured that ordeal. Yeah, okay. Um, we had a good time. People said, how was Hawaii? I'm like, it was Hawaii. What do you say? It was nice. Um, it's pretty cool to wake up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, because of course as a West Coaster, my body thinks it's eight o'clock, so I felt like I slept in, and it's, you know, an hour and a half before sunrise, and I get out on the lanai there as I'm listening to the ocean, and it's all dark outside, and it's 66 degrees. Like, this is pretty nice, you know? A uh, guy could get used to this. We like to call it paradise. Uh, we got to snorkel in a swimming pool that we call the Pacific Ocean. But unlike the way it looks here, it looks like a swimming pool there, you know, just in the midst of uh, some of the most brightly colored fluorescent fish, you know, you've ever seen. Some of you have had that opportunity. Um, my daughter and I found a sea turtle and stalked him for about 10 minutes uh, swimming around the bay. Just very cool experiences. And there's, there's very little like the sound of falling asleep with the sliding glass door open, which you can do in March in Hawaii. Can't really get away with that here, but anyway, you can do that there, and, and listening to the waves hit the sand, and then waking up the next morning to this thunderous chorus of probably two to three hundred tropical birds that spent every night in the tree just outside our window, and would just erupt in this chorus every morning. It sure beats the alarm on this thing that blares at me. Pretty cool. Uh, we call it paradise for a reason. Although, you know, as nice as Hawaii was, and many of you have been to nice places on vacation, uh, you know that even when you're in quote-unquote paradise, there are still signs of reality. And the fact that uh, there is no such thing as paradise in this world, right? There were a lot of them. I mean, as, as nice as it was to be there, there's only so many times you can go to a restaurant, sit down, and look at a menu that has Belgian waffles on it for like 18 bucks. And, uh, I mean, after a while, that takes a toll, you know? It kind of ruins the enjoyment of paradise when you feel like you're being fleeced every time you sit down, you know? Kind of takes a little bit of the edge off the joy. Or one day, uh, a couple of days, actually, when we were walking through a town, there's wonderful shops, and we're enjoying the beautiful weather, and you sit down in a, a park, and along come a couple of homeless people, uh, clearly mentally ill, just very difficult, forgotten people, really, really hard lives, or right there in paradise. Their experience of paradise was a lot different than the hundreds of people who were milling up and down the shops all around them. Or, you know, ultimately, it was like the, probably the grace of God, it didn't seem that way at the time, probably the grace of God to remind us that, you know, paradise really isn't paradise in this life because we're sitting here in this uh, gorgeous condominium and we're, you know, you can look to the left and there's all of the mountains. So we saw the sunrise come up over the tropical mountains every day. You look to the right and there's the ocean. You could just hear the waves. And you look right in the middle below us and there's a shopping center that's half demolished because they're doing construction on it. And so right in the middle of the day, you're sitting there in paradise going, ah, and then <laughs> the jackhammers start up. And they're busting up concrete and the beep, 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 you know, the dump trucks are coming out. And you're like, wow, that's not quite what I had in mind you know, when I thought about paradise. A couple times the noise was so loud, it kind of ran us out. We're like, we got to go find something to do. we got to get away from this. I thought we were here to get away from this. You know, we can't fully escape the brokenness of this world even when we try. 
Yet despite this, uh, we can't stay away from places like Hawaii, not judging by the number of people that were there. Millions and millions of us uh, just go out and drove to spend insane amounts of time getting ready and lots of money for just a few days in quote-unquote paradise. Just those few precious days when things seem a little nicer, a little warmer, a little more clear and vivid than we normally experience them. Knowing full well, we're going to go right back. And knowing full well, even when we get there, yeah, it's nice. But boy, if that was really all there was, something would still be missing. Nonetheless, we can't keep away. So strong is the pull of life on our hearts. As people, we're, we're wired for it. We're bred for it. We've got to have joy. We've got to have life. We're yearning for peace, for tranquility, for comfort. We're yearning for home. That's what we mean by paradise. Not really palm trees necessarily. Such is the pull of life on us. This quest for real life that was so in evidence to me amongst myself, my own family, and thousands of other people this past week really dovetails quite nicely with the study that we've been uh, dealing with in the Gospel of Mark as a church. Uh, Many of you are regular members. You're here all the time. You know, we started walking through the Gospel of Mark last fall, and we are finishing that study today with the 16th and final chapter of Mark's Gospel. Very appropriate because Mark's gospel is his account of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and it ends with the resurrection account. We just read it a moment ago with the empty tomb, and that's an appropriate place to end on Easter Sunday morning. And so if you've not been with us for any length of time, or this is your first Sunday here at Harvest, or maybe just one of your first few, we're actually ending a lengthy look together as a church family, following our Savior through his life, his death, and his resurrection to ask God, why is that significant for us today? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Mark has recorded how Jesus' disciples left everything to follow him, families, livelihoods, uh, plans, etc. They put it aside to follow him because they believed that Jesus was the Savior that God had sent to break the chains of pain, to break the, the chains that, of the bondage of sin on our lives and to usher them into eternal life. It was the quest for real life. And they left everything to follow him because they believed that he was going to lead them to the place of perfect righteousness, perfect joy in the presence of God. That's how they thought the story was going to go. But as we've seen just these last couple of Sundays, it sure didn't turn out to end that way, did it? There is a striking, a grinding disconnect in the gospel accounts, the Bible accounts of Jesus' life and death and ministry, because he comes on the scene proclaiming to be God in human flesh, the king of the universe, and he ends broken, bleeding, and beaten on a cross. Not much of a king. Now that leads us to this morning's passage, which we just read together, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Uh, By the way, we're going to focus on those verses because Bible scholars are virtually certain that verse 8 is where Mark's gospel originally ended, 
uh, when he wrote it. You'll notice there's several other verses in your Bibles after it. Those are mostly verses that are copied from other parts of the Bible. So all of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that are listed there, they all happened. They're attested to in other places in the Bible. Mark himself likely did not put them there. He leaves us with verse 8. And the reason that those were put there later is because Mark's ending is so jarring. It's so abrupt. It's, It's striking. It almost jars us as readers. He leaves us with the empty tomb and these three women who found it leaving and initially at least, despite the fact that the angel who was in the tomb told them, go tell Jesus' disciples, they don't tell anybody anything because they're so afraid they're stunned into silence. Thus ends the gospel of Mark. It's a jarring ending. Now we'll talk in just a moment about why Mark would have ended his gospel that way. The first thing to notice, though, is to get our heads a little bit around the experience that these three women had. If you look again at verse 5 of chapter 16, the Bible says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You think? Could you imagine, like, going to lay flowers on somebody's grave? And I'm not trying to be morbid or disrespectful in any way here, but this is kind of what was going on. We don't bury people in cave tombs anymore. Usually, if they're buried, they're in the ground. Could you imagine going to somebody's graveside, and you're like, wow, and as you're approaching it, you notice there's, like, a hole in the ground where you thought the graveside was going to be, and you're like, uh, that's not supposed to be there. And you, like, kind of creep up, and you look down, and there's a guy down there, and he's like, hi. Wah! I mean, yeah, they're, they're alarmed, but... But actually, that word conveys a little bit more in its original language. This was originally written in Greek. We're reading an English translation when we read our Bibles. It conveys a little bit more than the English word alarmed. It's really a shock that comes from being amazed. Not not just startled or frightened, but amazed. That's really the idea. They're amazed, meaning they were, nothing was as they expected it to be. They're walking toward the tomb, and Mark tells us they're talking to themselves, saying, who's going to get the stone out of the way? Because they wanted to go anoint Jesus' body with spices, which was customary in that day. But there's this massive, massive boulder blocking the way. Weighs tons. There's no way they can, like, how are we going to get in there? They're fully expecting to see the tomb just as they had seen it when Jesus had been buried on Friday. And instead, the stone is already rolled away. The tomb is empty. There's an angel sitting in there. And I'm sure they probably were uh, shocked and somewhat frightened. But more than anything, they're, they're just in amazement. The evidence of their senses is assaulting their preconceived ideas about how things are supposed to look. And many of us have had a similar experience, maybe not this dramatic, of course. But, you know, it's the same kind of experience you get when you park your car at the mall. And you go to your shopping, and you come out, and you go right back to where you know, you know, you parked your car there. And you walk up, and there's an empty parking slot. And there's that instant moment where you're just like, and your brain is trying to get it, you know, itself wrapped around what your eyes are telling you. I know, am I wrong? I can't be, I know I parked, but there's no car there. And then, of course, the only other alternative is even worse. I don't even want to think about that. Maybe something even more significant happened. Maybe somebody stole it, my car, or whatever. Or, Or maybe I really am wrong. There's that moment of just confusion. Like, I know this is the way it's supposed to be, but the facts are telling me otherwise. That's what these ladies are experiencing. And they're stunned because they're amazed. The women see the evidences 
that a miracle has occurred. And there's absolutely no question the Bible presents this to us as a supernatural miracle. This is not normal. People don't normally rise from the dead. God did something that contravened all the laws of nature as we and they know them. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. They see the evidences of it. The stone moved away. A tomb that is empty. The angel in the tomb saying to them, Jesus is alive. You saw him crucified. You saw him die, but he is alive. So now go spread the word. He's headed up to Galilee. Go see him for yourselves. And they're having to process what their eyes and ears are telling them is in front of them, and their minds are going, I cannot get my head around this. Are there any other possible explanations for this? Well, not surprisingly, throughout history, many have been offered. One of the interesting things is that you're holding, you're reading the gospel accounts in the Bible, you're holding in your hands a historical document, one of the best attested ancient history documents in the world. And so many historians have studied these accounts. A lot of them, of course, are Christians. Uh, Many of them are not. But virtually all historical scholars agree. All of the historical evidence points to the fact that on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus' tomb was empty. It was as Mark here describes it for us. So how could that possibly be? Some have suggested that, well, maybe the women, it was a mistaken identity. They went to the wrong tomb which of course is not very likely. Not many people even offer that as a, as a possible explanation anymore. They, they knew where Jesus' tomb was. What's more, the other gospels tell us that they did eventually go back and tell the other disciples and they too went to the tomb. They knew where it was too and they saw it empty. Now this isn't a case of just getting lost. I thought, I, I thought Jesus' body was parked in the E section it's over in the F, and I'm over in the F section. No, they, they knew where the tomb was. One theory that had floated around for a while but even people who are not Christians largely laugh this off, was the idea that maybe Jesus never really died. Maybe he just sort of passed out on the cross. They thought he was dead, and they buried him, and then later he kind of woke up. But the Romans were excessively good at killing people. They knew how to do it really well. And he was as dead as dead could be when they pulled him off that cross. Not to mention the fact, even if by some fantastical miracle, He had survived the cross and later woke up and was revived inside the tomb. There's this problem of a several-ton stone in his way. Perhaps the most significant and and, and widest believed and circulated idea these days is simply the idea that, that what you're reading here never actually happened. I mean, let's face it, we live in 21st century America. We find it very difficult many times to believe in the existence of the supernatural. A miracle, by definition, doesn't happen in this world, so there must be some other explanation. And if there's no other way to reconcile the account, then maybe the account itself is false. Maybe it's a myth. It's it's a a story that Christians made up probably hundreds of years after the time of Jesus, and they wrote it here and are trying to pass it off as if it was a first century episode that happened at the time of Jesus. Many people believe that about the account we just read. This isn't even trustworthy. It's a myth. But there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, once again, historians of all worldviews have fairly sophisticated ways of dating ancient manuscripts, and we know with strong confidence that the account you're reading originated in the 50s AD. Jesus was crucified in the early 30s. 
within the lifetime of many of the witnesses who, by if this story was spreading around and it never happened, people would have said, that never happened. I'm named in the Bible and it says I saw Jesus alive. I never saw him alive and the story would have fizzled. This is far too early to have been a myth. We know by studying cultures how myths develop. They take time. This simply doesn't fit the bill. It's too early. It's too authentic. And the idea that the disciples perhaps would have lied about it. Okay, maybe Jesus' disciples, they, they knew he wasn't alive, but they lied about it. Perhaps they stole his body and just went around telling people he rose from the dead, but he didn't really rise from the dead. And the difficulty with that is that they would have had no incentive to do so. None whatsoever. And you say, wait a minute, these were his disciples. Wouldn't they have wanted people to believe that Jesus was God? They were his followers, and if he was resurrected, certainly he was God. So they would have had all kinds of incentive to run around the countryside telling people that Jesus was risen. Actually, that's not true. That's not true. Because if they knew it was a lie... It would have been a funny strategy to keep spreading it because telling people that Jesus was alive did not get his disciples fame, it did not get them fortune, it did not get them position or power or status. What it made them was public enemies of the state. They lost family connections, they lost economic opportunity, they became enemies of the Roman government and the Jewish religious authorities. And ultimately, over the next number of years, the majority of the disciples experienced direct persecution in the form of arrest, imprisonments, beatings, and even executions in numbers of cases because they went to the grave saying Jesus was dead and he was alive. It's been said many times before, a person may die for something that they believe to be true. Even if they're wrong, if they believe it's true, they might be willing to die for it. But nobody dies for something that they know is a lie. All of the evidence pointed to Jesus' resurrection, and that's where Mark brings us at the end of his gospel, through the eyes of these three women. Now, questions like these about the, the believability of Jesus' resurrection, they're not unique to the 21st century. They've always been there. There's always been a proverbial elephant in the middle of the room ever since the gospel of Jesus was first proclaimed. If he was, and here, here's the elephant in the middle of the room, if Jesus really was the son of God, then why did the Roman Empire so obviously whip him? Not much of a God. Here's the disciples running around saying, Jesus was God, and yet the Romans had killed him. Mark wrote his gospel account in large part to address that very question. If you've been with us through the study, you remember that the whole first half of Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters of the 16 chapters, are really devoted to demonstrating that Jesus is the universe's king. We saw him do miracle after miracle after miracle in the first half of Mark's gospel, where he demonstrates his authority over demons, over disease, over death itself, and over the natural world. He is the universe's king. That's the first half of Mark's gospel. In the second half of Mark's gospel, the miracle accounts almost completely go away, and the focus now shifts. The message now is that if Jesus is king, we need to understand that he's going to suffer. 
And that's the message of the whole second half of this book. Jesus is going to suffer and he's going to die. This is the big elephant in the room. And it was for first century Christians, just as much as it is in the 21st century. How do we explain Jesus being God and yet Jesus being whipped by the Roman Empire on the cross? The Bible's answer, he came not to conquer, but he came to be conquered for the sins of his people. That was Jesus' mission. That's how he completed his mission of defeating sin. He conquered sin by being conquered for sinners in our place. That's how he pulled it off. And this is utterly unique amongst all other religious belief systems in the world. The gospel of Jesus stands completely apart in this, that God himself took care of our rebellious sin by condescending to become a man and die in our place. The Bible puts it potently in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says this, For our sake, God made him sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what the Bible says. There is a divine exchange that takes place in the life and death of Jesus. Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life that I should have lived in my place, and then he gives me that righteousness. This is crazy when you survey world religions. This is totally unique. Christianity is not a religion that is telling us, you've got to be a better person. You've got to toe the line. You've got to live up to God's standard, or he's going to be mad at you, and you're going to go to hell. Actually, Christianity is a religion that's telling us you can't toe the line. You can't live up to God's standard on your own. But I got good news. God is going to become a man and he's going to keep that standard for you. Jesus lived for me the perfectly righteous life I should have lived but couldn't and he then offers me that righteousness. That's one side of the exchange. The other side of the exchange is that he then died the sinner's death that I should have died as the penalty for my own sin. Thus, he takes the punishment that I deserve. That's what he was doing on the cross. That's why he condescended to be whipped by the Roman Empire. Guys, this is unbelievable in more ways than one. I would submit to you that as remarkable, as mind-blowing as the resurrection of Jesus is. I mean, it's, it's a miracle, so by definition, it's pretty mind-blowing. But I would submit that that is not the most amazing thing that we're talking about this morning. As amazing as the resurrection of Jesus is, there's an even more amazing and life-changing truth. And that more amazing truth is simply this. The God of the universe who is infinitely greater than you and I and all of us put together. The God of the universe compared to whom we are nothing does not simply demand our deference and, and stare down his almighty nose at us and say, you guys better clean up your act. Straighten up and fly right because you're a mess. So get it together. He doesn't insist on being constantly placated through ritual sacrifices the way so many other religions envision the gods being. 
The truth is we are utterly and completely incapable of placating him. We're totally unable to satisfy the standards of perfect justice, of which God alone is the perfect arbiter. So here's the truly amazing thing. God's glory stems in part from his holiness. Yes, that is true. He is holy. He is perfect. And that is to his glory. But God's uh, glory also stems in part from his love-driven mercy. That he would be merciful to people who don't deserve it. By definition, that's what mercy means. He would be more kind to us than we deserve, driven by his love. And that too is to his glory. And God demonstrates his love-driven mercy nowhere more powerfully. Couldn't be demonstrated more powerfully than when he became a man, Jesus who lived the perfectly righteous life for us that we could not live and died the sinner's death that we deserved for us. And he offers this death to us in our place so that we might have life. So, the life Jesus lived can earn my righteousness. The death Jesus died can pay my sin's penalty. This is the gospel of substitution. Jesus takes my place so that I can take his. That is beyond mind-blowing. That the perfectly holy, almighty God would do that. I wouldn't even have the guts to say that in public, but friends, that is exactly what the Bible teaches us happened. That's who God is. It's who he says he is. This is who I am, a perfect God of holiness and a perfect God of love-driven mercy. And the ultimate end game of this divine exchange is seen by these three women on that first Easter morning. What that exchange means for me, how does this boil down to where you and I live today? What it means for us is that the tomb is empty And Mark leaves us with that picture, I believe, because there is no more powerful visual illustration of the fact that death is disarmed in Jesus. You see, Jesus confounded his disciples' expectations too. He confused them because they thought they knew what to expect from him, but they were wrong. The women went to the tomb expecting to see a sealed tomb with a dead Jesus body, and they were wrong. And if at any point in your life, including this morning, you are a little confused about God, if you're not sure what to expect of him, or maybe you thought you knew what to expect of him, but he doesn't do or act or be what you thought he should be, then you're not alone. In fact, you're in the best place you could possibly be, and that is right here in church on a Sunday morning because this is a place where questions get asked, objections get lodged, yes, buts are safe to put on the table because God wants us to see who he is and what he has done and to wrap our minds around it so that we would know his power, his holiness, and his love-driven mercy. The first century world of the Roman Empire was confused by the gospel of Jesus. 
Christians were running around announcing that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh, but the Romans had killed him like they'd killed thousands of people before. It didn't make any sense. What was Christianity's explanation of this most curious of claims? What was the first century church's explanation for this paradoxical truth, this apparently contradictory truth that Jesus is God and yet he was killed? The answer was the empty tomb. The empty tomb. You see, the resurrection of Jesus vindicates his authority as king despite his role as suffering servant. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates his role as the universe's king despite his role as the suffering substitutionary servant. And so we find ourselves at the place where these women were in verse 8 of Mark chapter 16. The evidence is there. The tomb is empty. He's risen from the dead. This vindicates his claim to be the son of God. And the point of this is simply that death does not have a final say. Death does not have a final say. You know, for most of us, we think of the grave as being like the ultimate stop, like the ultimate end. I mean, that's it. You know, we know there's only two things in this life that are inescapable, but you usually survive paying your taxes. As painful as that might be sometimes, we usually get through the ordeal. The other one, it's like, man, death, what do you do? As a pastor, I've had occasion over the years to do numerous funerals and memorial services, and one of the, the roles that I play in a situation like that is just to try to loosen people up, to get people to connect with each other and grieve, usually family and friends of a loved one that's died, and, and, and talk to each other, because so many people, when they come into a memorial service, they're just like, they're uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. They don't like being there. Death kind of weirds us out. We're not really good with dying. We don't understand how to deal with it because it seems so final. And friends, the empty tomb on Sunday morning says that in Jesus, there's a back door to the grave. And Jesus is the key that opens it. A tomb is not a cul-de-sac. It's a boulevard. There is life on the other side. Against all hope, death does not have the final say. As we turn the corner and head toward home here, there's a couple of important implications for us, personally. Really two sides of the same coin. First, the pieces of happiness and joy that we do find in this life, as good as life gets when it's almost perfect, that's actually not as good as it gets. It's a lot better. The flip side of that is true as well. The bad parts of this life, the things that sort of act like a restraint on our joy, they are not as permanent as they seem because of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. As good as life gets, that's not all there is. I thought about that several times this past week, thinking about Easter while I'm sitting on the beach in Maui and just thinking, man, this place is wonderful. But on the other hand, I'm like, is this it? I mean, like, this, there's nothing better than this. I've hit the pinnacle, this moment right here. If that's the case, I'm kind of in trouble because that was nice, but life still has a lot of pressures and problems. The good news is the best this world offers is only the smallest shadow and foretaste of real joy that Jesus died and rose again to bring 
his followers. And if I could speak to our members for just a moment, may I encourage you to remember that, particularly as the season of Lent ends. Many of us as a church were fasting through these past 40 days leading up to Lent. That means we voluntarily chose to go without something that we normally like. Some people said, I'm not going to have no more lattes like until after Easter. Other people like, I'm going to skip lunch every day. Other people said like, hey, no dessert or sugar. Some people said, I'm, I'm off of Facebook, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. I'm not going to have a microbrew for the next 40 days, which for an Oregonian is like, I mean, that's a serious sacrifice, right? Now, whatever it is that you gave up, because many of us were doing this as, as members of our church, like this weekend is like the celebration weekend, right? This is what you've been looking forward to. Yay, I can finally go back to, you know, dessert or whatever the thing is. And that's good. That's good. You should go back and you should enjoy it and thank God for that good gift. But, but what we're seeing here in the Bible is telling us something that I, I would encourage us to be just as intentional at ending our Lent fast as we were at beginning it. Here's what I mean by that. Recognize that whatever good thing you've been doing without and you're anticipating getting back to, the very best that that thing is is only a small little signpost that's pointing you to the life that you have in Jesus Christ. Don't use sugar or coffee or Facebook or beer or lunch or whatever it is as a substitute for the gospel of Jesus. Enjoy the good things God has given us and even as you enjoy it, remember this is not all there is because he rose from the dead. And the flip side of that is true. The pain that often accompanies even our best moments, you know, the jackhammers that go off when you're in paradise, these things that just sort of act like a, a governor that limits how much you can rev up the engine of joy, so to speak. Those limiters are not permanent. The words of an old hymn put it this way, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. The resurrection of Jesus is that potent and that powerful. Can I ask you, do you have anything in your life, anything that gives you that kind of confidence, certainty of purpose, and hope for the future. There's good news, but there's a choice that has to be made. We'll close with this passage of scripture from the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 11. The Bible says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch the if then? My mortal body, my literal flesh will receive resurrection life. That is my rock solid hope if God's spirit dwells within me. Friends, there's a choice to be made. Jesus died for you. He lived for you and he rose again so that the end result would be life for you. But we've got to leave everything and bank on him as the universe is king. That doesn't mean everybody gets joy, not if we still reject Jesus. This Easter morning, God is beckoning you home. And I'd like to 
wrap up this portion of our service. We're going to get to continue in worship and song in just a moment by praying and inviting you to pray with me. So if you take just a moment, if you wouldn't mind, just bowing your head, close your eyes. That's really just to block out distractions and create a little bit of space in your own mind to think. If you recognize this morning that you need to know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it begins by deep from deep within our hearts, not just reciting words, but being in a place where we recognize that God is right. We admit that we are sinners and on our own we can never meet his standards. We acknowledge that Jesus has met those standards for us and paid our penalty on the cross for us. And it comes with a simple commitment to bank everything on him. In the quiet of just the next few moments, I want to encourage you to pray just silently in your own heart, your own mind. God understands. God knows. You might want to pray a prayer that's something like this. God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and in your debt. I recognize, Jesus, that you paid for my sins on the cross. I accept, Jesus, that you met the standard of holiness for me in your life. And I submit my life to you now as my king and my God. Would you accept me? Cleanse me? Change me? And welcome me into your family? In Christ's name, amen.